Hello, everybody. Before we start today's episode, I am so excited to announce that we officially have a new sponsor of Simply Finance with Shane White, and that is Routine. Um, I actually had one of the founders of Routine on the podcast as one of my early on founder series episodes uh, back in 2020. And um, they are now officially the sponsor of Simply Finance with Shane White. So, so excited to announce them to all of you. Uh, Routine was founded by a husband and wife with one simple goal, establish healthy routines for healthy lifestyles. The founders tried a lot of hydration and wellness supplements and found that most are full of sugar, synthetic ingredients, and were also made overseas in uncontrolled environments and didn't accomplish what they claimed to do. Instead of, in running in, sorry, instead of reinventing the wheel, uh, Routine looked to time-tested natural ingredients that generations of parents have trusted. They focused on creating products that keep those natural ingredients whole but make them more convenient for our modern, busy lives. Their newest product is called Mo- Morning Routine. Um, just so you know, when we sleep, we lose around a pound to a pound and a half of water, expelling vapors, sweat, etc., each packet of morning routine, which they come in a single serve packet, little tear away packet you dump in water. Each packet contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, and Himalayan sea salt. This combination has all six essential electrolytes and most importantly, no sugar. As I mentioned, it's just a one uh, serving tear packet that you dump in around 20 ounces of water. Um, they suggest you start your day with this. That's why it's called morning routine. And as always, routine is made up of trusted ingredients made convenient. The link to routine is in the show notes. If you want to just go and find that, click, and it'll take you to their website. Or you can go to yourroutine.com. And as an offer from routine to all of my listeners, if you'd like to get 30%, which is a huge discount to start off, 30% off your first order at yourroutine.com. Or again, link in the show notes. At checkout, use code ShaneWhite30 to get 30% off. All right, everybody. Hope you guys check out Routine. Um, you know, as you all know, I normally always share with you guys brands, um, products that I'm passionate about. Um, you know, I've talked about Robinhood, talked about Whoop in the past, and Routine is no different. Um, I do believe in what they're building. I love their products. Uh, morning Routine um, has been something that I've been taking and have seen great results. I honestly just feel more energized. Um, I feel more hydrated, if that makes sense. Like I really do. Um, and so I think you guys will love the product. And as always, like I said, um, if you use Shane White 30, you can get 30% off your first order. So it's a great way to try out the product and see if it's something that you can enjoy. All right, everybody. The next episode is up right after this. Hello, everybody. Before we start today's episode, I just want to introduce Jake Kneller and Sweet Nothings. Sweet Nothings is a company that is trying to take fruits and veggies that we all love to eat, but can obviously you know, be difficult to um, make on our own, um, or honestly, at least make them taste good uh, and make them convenient. Um, so between ma- ma- trying to make fruits and veggies taste good um, make them convenient and have them in forms that also, um, you know, kids and, and younger consumers will enjoy is always a challenge. So Jake and the sweet nothings team has created uh, single serve frozen cups, 
um, that are taking smoothies and putting them into these frozen cups um, to make a delicious single serve treat for you and your kids. Uh, by listening to today's episode, if you want to try Sweet Nothings, uh, the link is in the show notes. And you can actually get 20% off your order from Sweet Nothings um, by using code SIMPLY. And that, that is spelled S-I-M-P-L-I. So use code SIMPLY at checkout and you will get 20% off of your first order uh, of Sweet Nothings. And you can support Jake and the team. All right, everybody. Without further ado, let's give it up for Jake Kneller of Sweet Nothings. Welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I'm stoked today to have Jake Kneller from Sweet Nothings on the podcast. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. I've been a listener for a while and it's exciting to be on here. I am pumped to have you, man. Um, do you mind giving everyone just a little intro to yourself and then obviously a little intro to the brand? Yeah, I would love to. So um, starting with my background, um, after undergrad, worked in finance for a while, um, enjoyed the the day-to-day work, but knew pretty early on it wasn't something I wanted to do longer term. And um, we made an investment in um, a company that ended up backing Impossible Foods pretty early on. So had some exposure to that, loved what Impossible was doing, thought it was a really exciting time to join the plant-based sort of consumer food movement oh, yeah. and was able to, to jump from my finance role over to Impossible. Um, spent some time there back when the burger was in three restaurants. So right, very much the, the, the early days of the, the, the blind leading the blind, learning a ton, uh, moving quickly um, and, and really enjoyed and learned a ton from the team there. Um, went back to Stanford for my um, MBA and knew that I wanted to start what, what we call a, a truly good for you um, CPG brand. Um, it was important to me that it was great from an environmental perspective, but my passion really lies in the improving human health aspect of what this world and, and these companies can do. So I was focused on a nutrient dense, antioxidant rich product. Um, I, I worked on a few different products, a few different uh, prototypes and ideas, and then serendipitously was introduced to my co-founder, Beth, um, who was working on what, what we now call Sweet Nothing Spoonable Smoothies and was looking for a co-founder who wanted to focus a bit more on the business side of things. Oh, that's cool. So you guys were both kind of working. You guys didn't know each other, but you were kind of both had interests in the same sphere. Yeah, yeah. So we met, I tried um, the product and I'll give you a little bit more background on that story in a second, but loved the product, loved her vision um, and her husband's Brooks vision, who's been really involved with the company since day one as well. Um, We just had very similar values and what we cared about and what we wanted to focus on for a product. Got it. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask, what was the, you know, the first batch like, or do you remember, how did you even come about like the concept of coming up with Sweet Nothings? Yeah, so it was all Beth. She gets full credit here. So Beth has been um, an entrepreneur since 2004. And for um, almost 15 years, she ran and led um, a company that provided in-home services for families with children on the autism spectrum. Oh, okay. And 
while doing that was also trying to balance being a great parent at home. So um, she now has a, a, a eight-year-old as of today, actually. Oh, cool. Um, and a 12, almost 13-year-old um, and was constantly looking for healthy, convenient snacks that she and her husband loved, but also that her kids would love and eat and felt like there were two choices a lot of times. One were the healthy, clean products that didn't taste that good and, and no one was that excited to eat. And two were the products that marketed themselves as healthy, but you turn the label over and there's um, a bunch of ingredients that you wouldn't put in a product if you had time to make it yourself. Right. That's a good way to think about it. Actually, I've never heard someone say it like that. Just like, yeah, you so know, what, stuff you wouldn't put in if, you, if you're making your own. Right. If you had the time, you wouldn't add those ingredients. So the sort of solution she found at first was smoothies. When she made smoothies, whether it was at for breakfast or 10 a.m. or 3 p.m., her family all loved it. It was a great way to get them fruits and vegetables and um, fiber and omega-3s from chia and flax, yet she hated making them all the time. So what yes. she started doing was making big batches on Sunday mornings and freezing them in single serving cups and throwing them all in the freezer. And ah. um, they would just grab them throughout the week and eat them from frozen. Um, she would have one as a light breakfast. Um, her son, Chasen, would grab one after school. He'd run inside and, and grab one as an after school snack. Her husband would have one with a glass of wine uh, after work. And basically, these spoonable smoothies became a staple in the Porter household. Oh, how funny um, is that? So it was kind of by by accident in a way, right? Yeah, exactly. And and Beth then looked and said, okay, there has to be a product like this in the market that I can start buying so I don't have to spend every Sunday doing this and <laughs> found nothing that was sort of uh, up to snuff with ingredients, taste, um, format. Um, we really do feel like we are creating this new ready-to-eat smoothie cup category that doesn't really exist in, in retail today. And that's why I was so excited to join forces with Beth and, and bring this product to people everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's a, it's definitely a different product that I, I even was surprised. I'm like, yeah, there's not anything like that really on the market. Um, what, what would you say? Yeah, because what do you guys, you guys kind of sit with like, it's not really like, I mean, I guess you could definitely have your product instead of a dessert, like you said, at, at night with wine. I mean, you could have it as a morning thing. You could have it as an afternoon snack. So it seems like you guys are kind of across the spectrum, probably have a lot of different competitors that you're kind of sitting on the shelf with. Yeah, we do. And we do see our customers enjoy it at a variety of occasions. The most popular being sort of the 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. time period. Sure. Um, you know, the feeling where you're looking for a little snack in between meals and um, you don't necessarily want to go grab another bar or another handful of trail mix. You want something that's healthy, but exciting and um, fulfilling. And we think we really fill that gap. So for the most part, we have focused on merchandising in frozen fruit. Okay. Um, what we have found is the frozen fruit customer is elated that there is finally a ready-to-eat product that was created with them in mind. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And where where today, um, you know, being frozen, I know I mean, from my e-commerce experience that adds a ton of challenges um, from the, trying to ship e-com wise. But as far as retail goes, where are you guys currently at? Where are you guys currently distributed? Yeah, so um, 
maybe backing up for a second, sure. um, retail is fairly new for us. So when we first started, um, after we finalized flavors, found a co-packer, et cetera, we were ready to go to market fall of 2019. Okay. And our initial focus was really on food service. So we were a top selling product at corporate cafeterias across the country, like Apple's headquarters um, in Cupertino, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs in New York, um, had some other exciting launches with um, uh, water parks and um, hospitals and universities um, in the pipeline. Um, and then I don't, I don't need to tell you what happened next, but uh, the, the global pandemic really yeah. um, shifted priorities for us where we realized sometime in early April that um, this was going to be a while and that brick and mortar and, and a focus on retail and grocery was going to need to be necessary to keep growing the business. Yeah, right. I was going to say, how did at that time, it's such a pivotal time, I'm sure for you guys and your growth story is what, how was that with COVID? I mean, what were some of the things that you guys ran into immediately and would love to know kind of how you thought through 2020 and what you guys did to, you know, pivot and try to make the most of the situation? Yeah, it was crazy because we thought it was such a foolproof uh, path to, to go to market strategy. Of, right. There's always going to be these large corporate cafeterias with thousands of people coming through each day. They have limited selection, a great way to get feedback, build the brand, get some early revenue. It, it truly felt foolproof. Yeah, <laughs> ahead oh, of definitely. Yeah. Um, so really, we just we said, OK, what are the other channels that we wanted to focus on over the next several years and how can we best accelerate those now? Um, retail obviously was a huge component to that. So we immediately um, started pounding the pavement to local stores um, with this pitch of, hey, we're the first ready to eat product for your frozen fruit set. So when someone comes in to buy, buy their bag of frozen strawberries and their bag of frozen blueberries to make smoothies at home, they'll also grab a strawberry or blueberry sweet nothings because some days you don't feel like cleaning out your blender and adding right. almond milk and dealing with that mess. Even if it's five minutes, it's still a mental hurdle. Some days you want to open the freezer, grab a healthy, clean, smoothie type product, eat it and be done. And, and that pitch has really resonated with retailers across the country. And I would think during COVID, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I would imagine your type of product is what people are kind of hopefully starting to move to now too. I feel like the, the health conscious movement kind of got a kick in the butt during COVID. Like at first everyone was stocking up on all the, you know, unhealthy, crappy stuff because we're all stuck at home. And that was the, the common thing that's shelf stable, yeah. but it's interesting for you guys because number one, it's healthy. Number two, it's frozen. So I'm sure the shelf life lasts a long time. Um, so curious how that was, how that went as far as like, you know, gaining new customers through COVID and just overall how that trajectory kind of played out through 2020. Yeah. What we found is we've really bridged that gap for consumers from, um, the, the more indulgent snack foods that maybe they were eating at the beginning of COVID and, um, just eating fruits and nuts and, and those sorts of things where it's healthy and clean, but there still is an indulgent feeling to eating it yeah. that allows customers to in some ways get the best of both worlds. And, and what we've seen is that it resonates not only with the natural consumers. So this product doesn't only thrive with the um, hippie natural store in, in Santa Monica, but also um, across conventional and mass, where um, we're a, a top-selling product now on Fresh Direct in the Northeast, 
awesome. um, we, we are in the middle of a um, several hundred store test with Kroger and um, have, re have received some really positive feedback from them about growing our presence um, ahead of the summer. So that, that's been important to us from the beginning too, of how do we make this um, accessible, relatable, and interesting to all consumers? Yeah, no, definitely. Has, um, like I kind of mentioned before, has e-commerce, I mean, obviously you guys have a, a, your own website, which is awesome. Is, um, was that kind of like the first avenue when you guys brought this to market? Did you use a, what, your website first? Or were you guys in like local stores and um, some of these like cafeterias and stuff first? Like how did you guys start growing uh, out in the market? Yeah, more of the latter, where we were really intimidated by frozen operations, logistics, et cetera. Sure. Um, where shipping on dry ice with the right insulation and the right packaging, et cetera, was, was daunting. We definitely accelerated that once COVID happened. So do have a, a pretty significant direct-to-consumer operation through our website now, um, which is exciting, but definitely wasn't the case prior to COVID. And then also seeing that um, growth on the e-com sites like a Fresh Direct in the Northeast or Good Eggs in the Bay Area, um, where more and more consumers, as, as I'm sure you're very familiar with as well, have, have gone to in, in this world where they don't want to just go out to the grocery store when, for, for needs each week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting too, I think the one thing over the last year that I've started to really see, and I'm sure it's helping for you guys, is seems like if you're online and you're selling online and people can at least find you online somewhere, um, then next time they go into the store, you're just a part of this ever ending ecosystem for them where, you know, you're in store, you see sweet nothings, you go online, you can see that, you know, your website either comes up in an ad or you're on fresh direct and see you guys. It's like just that the fact of being everywhere slowly, but surely with distribution really obviously helps speed up that flywheel. That's super interesting. Yeah, and so it's also, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's such a powerful way to connect directly with customers where when we're at a local grocery store, I have no idea. I know the product's selling. I know um, they're reordering, but I have no idea who's buying them when they're eating them, et cetera. So our team takes pride in trying to reach out to some of our best direct-to-consumer customers and sending an email like, hey, we'd love to send you a free case of product if we can just chat for 20 or 30 minutes and learn more about when you're eating this product, why, what, what you love about it, what you wish were different about it, et cetera. And that feedback from real customers who aren't our friends, who we don't know, yeah. who are less accessible in a COVID world has been really powerful as we think about new flavors, improving current flavors, messaging, branding, et cetera. I think people don't even sometimes don't realize how powerful D2C is from that regard. I mean, for you guys, has that paid off? Is that, you know, reaching out, offering free product in return for learning more about the consumer? Is that, is that been able to be something you guys can scale and actually take some pretty helpful insights out of? Yeah. And I think we have to keep in mind, it's always anecdotal, but as we sort of compound enough of these conversations and similar themes come up from the mom on the East Coast who's buying it to the millennial in Ohio who's buying it to the, the individual in California, when there's these commonalities and overlap with what they love when they eat it and what they think could be better, it starts to click for us of, okay, this feels like um, a, a more thematic um, a more thematic understanding of, of what needs to change in this product. Right. 
Right. And I always think it's interesting too. I mean, you kind of hit it on the head before when you see sales improve or increase at, you know, grocery or mass or anywhere out in the market, it's great that you see growth, but yeah, a lot of times you don't know why or who it is. Um, with D2C, it's pretty powerful. Um, just the ability to know exactly where it's going. Sometimes even like demographic information and age and all kinds of stuff. Um, and for you guys, I'd be curious. I mean, like you've said, you, you guys have done well on the East Coast, the West Coast, and now you're even seeing a lot of success in some other avenues. What would you say currently is like your, you know, if you had to call it your your mainstream consumer, what does that person look like? Who are they? Um, just curious on like, you know, where your tribe has really been created. Yeah, I'd say there's two main buckets that we've found to be most excited um, and loyal to the product. Um, the first is sort of the brand discovery focused millennial where um, 21 to 35, mostly in metro areas, um, really care about um, the brands that they support um, and really care more and more about what's in the products they're eating, where it's sort of the the 2.0 consumer in a lot of ways of, oh, I'm not just going to trust the health claims that I'm seeing on the front of this package. I'm turning the label over and looking at their nutrition to see what's actually in this product because I've been fooled by brands before and I'm not going to be fooled by brands again. It's a really busy customer who loves the ready to eat aspect of the product. Um, They love posting on social media about finding new products and and their health hacks, et cetera, and have been um, really, really great to sweet nothings. Love that. Yeah, the the second group is the the health conscious parent. Um, Parents, usually with young kids who are so overwhelmed by trying to balance everything in their life that the idea of having a ready to eat healthy product in their freezer at all times that their kid might think is is ice cream or a treat, but they right. know is super healthy, no added sugar, organic, plant-based um, really um, is something that they're so grateful for. We receive DMs and emails all the time of, wow, I cannot believe this product is just blended organic fruits, nuts, and seeds. My kid thinks it's a treat that he should get as a reward when he does his homework and I'll oblige <laughs> to that all day, Oh yeah, um, which is a really great feeling. Well, I'm sure. And I'm sure it also, you know, I, the brands that I've talked to, it seems like that is always a hurdle for brands. It's like trying to go from an adult consumer and then looping in kid consumers. And it's really cool. I mean, I, I think even your packaging, I, I would assume, I don't know if this for a fact, but I could see kids even like gravitating towards it. It looks like something that, you know, from a kid's eyes could be a treat, obviously, if it tastes good and it's frozen. I feel like most kids are going to love that. It's got to be a powerful thing. You can probably, you can pull in multiple types of consumers and then all of a sudden the whole family's eating sweet nothings. Yeah, exactly. And as you know, our cups are single serving. So they're 3.6 ounce. They have a spoon inside the lid that tears right off the lid. So it's really this grab and go fun snack. Give it to your kid in the backyard or or throw one um, in your bag as you're heading out the door. Um, That versatility of it um, is been really powerful and received really positive feedback too of, okay, it's not a big tub that I need to scoop out or that I need to um, the handle for, for portion control, whatever it's yeah. this perfectly sized single serve cup that I can just rip scoop and enjoy. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, we can get into it a little bit later, but from like a 
future innovation, you don't share anything you don't want to. Could you see Sweet Nothings going ever from single serve to like, I don't know, like I envision like a, you know, a big thing of a big tub of ice cream type size thing where you're like dishing it out for the whole family. Or do you guys think the single serve is really like kind of your key marquee sort of um, offering that's easier for on the go and everything? Yeah, we, we love the current format just because of this sort of smoothie cup concept um, that consumers seem to be really receptive to. However, definitely have plans for um, additional products and additional sizes, all with the same values of uh, plant-based, no added sugar, super clean ingredient deck. Um, I think there's some stuff outside of Frozen we're excited to pursue as well. Oh, okay. um, um, but do all the time here from on the food service side, whether it's hospitals or corporate cafeterias, et cetera. Of, hey, we'd love just a drum of this, a, a sure. two gallon drum that we can scoop um, and think eventually that could be interesting. For now, what's really important to us is really um, helping consumers understand what the product is and what the product isn't. So we're not trying to be the hundredth healthy, better for you ice cream on the market. Right. And when it's scooped in that manner, all of our brains inevitably go towards, oh, this is an ice cream product. Um, and, and when consumers think of this product as, as ice cream, when they compare it to their favorite ice creams that are full of um, fats and added sugars and, and um, all these delicious ingredients, don't get me wrong, I, I, I love ice cream, I eat a ton of ice cream, it's not shaming ice cream, but um, it's not an apples to apples comparison and it's not an apples to apples occasion. So. I think our size and use case of that size is a big part of emphasizing, hey, this isn't trying to be ice cream. This is a new category that we're creating. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so true too, because I mean, to me, I was thinking about it before we hopped on here, how um, just the use case can be applied to so many things. Like there's so many times where, I mean, even grabbing like a bar or something, um, you know, if you could swap that out for a frozen um, sweet nothings, how great that would be, you know, on the go, you're at the airport, you know, there's just so many times where I like, I would so much rather eat a spoonable smoothie than I would a million other things that are currently available, which is really cool. Yeah, no, exactly what we're going for are those occasions. And, um, and that's, that was sort of our thought from the beginning, but of course we had to wait and see what customers actually went when they actually ate it. We can't tell you exactly when to eat it, yeah. but have been, fortunate to see that through surveys, through D2C follow-ups, et cetera, of that is the, the mindset people have and the occasion that they're enjoying it because they're sick of eating that same bar at 3 p.m. every day. Right. Which, yeah, I totally, totally get. Do you think, you know, obviously timing's everything. It's not perfect to like launch into some of these retail locations right before COVID. We've heard that by lots of different people. Um, but do you think there could be some silver lining in 2020 for a lot of brands? And it sounds like you guys too, it gave you guys a year to kind of like learn more about your consumer, really test out some, some touch points. And like, it sounds like you guys have, without going into detail, have, have had, still had lots of success and progressed. And it, are, it seems like you guys might be one of those brands that is um, positioned to like really excel in all these different use case scenarios when things kind of start to go back to more of a normal state. Do you, would you agree? Yeah, with that? we're, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are eager to get back to a, a post COVID world at the same time, 
definitely appreciate the silver linings of one, it pushed us to go into brick and mortar retail a lot sooner than we were planning on it. It's sure. it's an intimidating world retail. And we were seeing good success on the food service side of things that we weren't in a rush and this really forced our hand. And, and because it's been doing so well in retail, it's, it's such a, a, a fortunate silver lining, lining in such a horrible year for, for so many. Um, I do think that it allowed us to take a step back and not rush into as much because from a marketing field marketing brand ambassador consumer education trial perspective we've been able to do so much less than we were planning on doing right. that um, now we're, we're chomping at the bit our our marketing team is just so ready to go and um, hopefully this summer things will be in a position where it's appropriate to, to get out there and really help people understand this product and build this brand. Yeah, no, I, I hope so too. Are, how have you guys, you know, obviously a lot of brands were doing, you know, in-store demos, obviously for brick and mortar before COVID. Um, some people in, I would say, you know, obviously Frozen's tough, but giving out samples online has been another one where a lot of like different types of brands have done. What have you guys tried to do in the last 12 months just to, you know, get more of these single serve containers in hands, as we all know, that's such like an important part of, of growing your customer base. Yeah, it's been incredibly challenging. We hear time and time again from retailers, from brokers, this product is perfect for sampling. This product is perfect really for a is. demo table. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you don't really fully understand the concept. You take one bite, it's refreshing, it's flavorful, and you're like, wow, that is a snack that I, that I want to have. So um, it has been challenging. I think we've tried to be creative in a variety of ways, um, some around um, working with influencers um, on different e-com sites. We've worked with them where customers can get their first cup free. So if they're ready ordering other frozen products, they can throw in a sweet nothings for free and, and try the product and the repeat purchase rates of that consumer have been really promising. So continuing to do stuff like that. Um, and then there's also just the reality of a lot of this comes down to um, promos on shelf where you get a brighter tag, you get a two for five sign, et cetera. And it draws a consumer's eye to, oh, this looks interesting and I'm gonna give it a try while it's on sale. So um, I think with any brand of our size, it's crucial to find the right balance there. You don't always wanna be on discount. You don't always wanna be cutting into your margin and you don't wanna train consumers that they should only buy on sale. Right. But you also wanna be doing it frequently enough on a quarterly basis, let's say, so that that new customer who is walking through the frozen aisle, you get their attention with the bright yellow tag and the little description because you're on sale and and all of a sudden that becomes a loyal habit forming customer of the product. Um, so I think we've been doing more of that than maybe we had planned because we haven't been able to do as much of demos. We found some success with sort of the geo-targeted social ads, but for the most part, I think um, for a brand our size, it's not the most efficient use of capital. So um, yeah, it's been a struggle in some ways. Yeah, no, but that's really smart. I mean, that's one thing on here I haven't heard uh, is trying to like repurpose or not necessarily repurpose, but kind of, you know, demo spend into promotional spend. It's like, it's kind of the flip of the coin and how I've always thought about it too, of, you know, if you can't be giving it out for free, you could at least discount product. Um, you know, people are still looking, they're still buying off the shelf. So that's like the, the, probably the best way then to kind of alleviate that demo pressure. That's, that's great. That's awesome. 
Um, kind of wanted to go into um, one of my favorite topics, which is just that. So for you guys, I'm going to kind of back up here a little bit. You and your co-founder obviously seemed like you were a great match. You both were interested in the same space, um, created a product that uh, resonates with a lot of different use cases. You know, the entire family can get behind it. Um, early on, it sounded like you guys both have had, had experience in different avenues. How did you think about the typical, you know, bootstrapping versus raising capital? Um, and like, could you walk everyone through just like your guys' thought process early on and how you guys started the business? Yeah, um, absolutely. And um, it was fortunate that we we met during my second year of business school. And at Stanford, there's a famous class of the business school called Startup Garage, where yeah. basically you get credits to work on a startup idea. And um, the lectures of that class are practitioners and our um, executives and entrepreneurs and board members who come in twice a week for two hours to teach this class, which is an incredibly fortunate opportunity and walk you through um, your ideas, what you're working on, um, how to pressure test different parts of your hypothesis, um, really emphasizing this idea of you're never going to get it right on the first time, you need to be willing to iterate, those sorts of, of values. So I was able to um, work on it in that class on a Tuesday and Thursday morning and then oh, wow. go over to Beth's house, which was right near campus, um, and and work with her on it for, for hours and hours too. But Basically, we were able to spend six plus months building it. Um, Stanford Cafeteria was generous enough to let us sell it in, in the cafeteria pretty early oh, on to cool. get some feedback. So we had a pretty good story, product, and understanding of what we needed to do before we went off to, to raise that initial capital. So we were able to bootstrap and be pretty um, cost efficient um, for the first several months. Once we did decide to raise um, we were also um, fortunate that some of those practitioners from the Startup Garage class who had seen me working on it in class and, and um, became very familiar with Beth through um, all the work I was doing with her on it outside of class where they said, hey, when you're ready to raise some money, we'd love to, we'd love to help and we'd love to be involved and, and invest. So that was sort of that initial interest that allowed us to then um, raise some initial capital to do our first large production runs, to get into our first um, corporate accounts, eventually our first retail accounts, et cetera. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like um, having those people in your inner circle has got to be, I've never raised capital myself, but that has got to be such a um, a great way to kind of like start that process. Because for you guys, like, what what would you say were like, some of the important factors into deciding to raise capital and then not just raise it, but like who it's coming from, I'm sure had to have been a conversation you guys had at some point. And I'm sure the audience would love to just know, you know, what kind of were some of the things you guys thought through and considered um, before actually taking any capital? Yeah. So we tried to wait as long as possible, but basically as we started getting into these first, um, runs with our, our co-packer. Um, the minimums were really high. Um, there was a lot of um, a heavy sort of working capital component of buying raw materials and packaging months ahead, um, paying for the production, getting it made, yeah. um, bringing product to cafeterias and them having 30 or 60 days to pay us. 
So it just got to the point where we're like, hey, we, we have some great opportunities here to really grow the business, but we can't do it without raising capital. And until then, tried to be as scrappy as possible. Beth and I made every cup by hand until then. Um, we rented space in a commercial kitchen space in Northern California, um, where the two of us would recruit friends and family to come make product with us um, oh, multiple awesome. days a week. My my girlfriend became an expert in in making spoonable smoothies. She was <laughs> she was there with me eight hours a day, several days a week. So really tried to be as scrappy as possible for as long as possible, but did get to this inflection point where we said, okay, we're now ready to make it in a factory instead of making it ourselves. And we now have the demand on the customer side from these food service opportunities to sell through this product. Um, let's raise that, that initial capital. And at, um, at, that, at, that, at that point for you, what was like some of the emotions you had? Like, I feel like if I'm sitting there with my co-founder and we get to the point where like, we have enough demand to move to an actual co-packer to actually manufacture it for us. Was that exciting? Was it nerve wracking? Was it all the above? It was all the above. And, and the whole process is so overwhelming. And, and that also comes from a perspective of having the privilege of all of Stanford's resources behind me and um, Beth and her husband having familiarity with the process from previous businesses um, and work experience, et cetera. And, and even for us, it was overwhelming and confusing and you understand how um, hard raising capital can be for, for others too. So I think there was a huge learning curve for us while acknowledging all the privileges and resources we had. Um, and, and how intimidating of a product it, process it can still be. Um, but, but once we sort of got, got um, past that hurdle and were able to, to have the opportunity and support of, um, of these lecturers and some other folks, um, then it just became um, both really exciting and stressful um, at yeah. the same time where you're now like, okay, other people have invested hard earned money um, betting on our ability to execute on this vision. Right. Yeah. Right. It's got to be like a total shift when that, once you have that capital, because then it goes from being just your guys's dream to being still your guys's dream, obviously. And then also someone else's dream too, to see it succeed. Right. And making sure you do that. Yeah. And there's this balance of, of course, wanting to sell the vision and what we think the company can become and what we think we can build, but also being very honest of, hey, 85, 90% of new food and beverage companies fail. So there is a very high probability that your investment isn't worth anything at some point. And I think it was important to us to make sure that all of our investors acknowledged and understood that, which is um, in retrospect, I'm so happy we did because it didn't feel like we were pulling over the covers of on, on anyone and that everyone knew what they were getting into. But it is funny where we would go from this is our pitch. This is why this can be a huge business. And let's look at the data. 90% of these companies fail. And yeah. once you're comfortable with that, then we'd love to have you invest, but we want to be very honest um, with that so that there isn't an expectation you're going to double your money in a year or that you're definitely going to get your principal back or any of those things, because um, we want it to be, have as honest and collaborative of a relationship with these folks as we could. Yeah. And that's, that seems like such an important little fact that I haven't really heard from many people. Um, just the, the fact of how you kind of kept that balance. Um, 
Very interesting. I think, I think for a lot of people, just like the whole concept of raising capital always feels just sounds overwhelming. Like, where do you start? Um, yeah, I'm sure it is. Right. Cause it seems like it almost becomes like a second, not a second, but maybe like a big chunk of your day, day to day is like, once you get into the raising capital time, it's gotta be so much focus and there's gotta be so many meetings and follow-ups. And I'm sure you get a bazillion questions on, things you showed in your deck. So how was that time? Like you're trying to operate a business, trying to grow a business. You're trying to like pitch to investors and, and raise capital. Was that a hard time and a, and a, and a busy time? Yeah, no, it was definitely difficult where you also feel this guilt that something's pulling you away from just the execution and operation of what you're trying to build of, okay, I'm spending half of my day this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday pitching people. And of course, it's a necessary part of the process. And if you're lucky to find the right investors, the value they add goes well beyond their capital with their experience and network and perspective. And we've been really fortunate to have some of those folks come come and, and take a seat at the, the table and bet on us. But um, it's definitely a lot of multitasking. I think one thing I've learned is now to try to keep the communication channels open with potential future investors so that when we are in need of capital in the future, um, we're not saying, hey, we haven't chatted in 18 months, here's what we've done. But ah, hey, yeah. for the last 18 months, every quarter we've jumped on a 30 minute Zoom where we've chatted through what happened last quarter, what our goals are for the next quarter, if we achieved those goals or didn't achieve those goals, what's changed, et cetera. And it gives investors this familiarity with your business and how you're building it and how you're thinking about it and how you're pivoting when, when things don't work out and you hear no's so that when it comes time, time to raise capital, our hope is that of course it will be a, a slog, of course it will be a hard process, but some of these folks that we've identified as potentially being great partners have much more familiarity with where the business is at today and how it got there than they would be if we fully disappeared for the right. 18 months of building. So it's kind of just like always staying in front of these people and kind of like always keeping that door cracked open um, that there could be opportunities if you know you need it or if the right opportunity arises kind of thing. Yeah. And, and to be honest, at first I sort of dreaded it and wasn't sure if it was the right use of time, but I've found those conversations to be so helpful where a lot of these folks have invested in other consumer companies and do have perspectives and advice and opinions, even if they're not an investor today. So I think even just talking through, hey, here's our strategic plan for the next six months and this is why, or here's how we're thinking about pricing strategy and why, and being able to bounce those ideas off of really smart people who have seen it before has yeah. sharpened uh, sharpened our sword and our ability to execute. Oh yeah, that totally, that, that totally makes sense. Um, for you guys at the stage you're at, and obviously you're, you know, COVID's been tough on a lot of brands. How do you guys think about, and I would assume it probably, maybe it's changed a little bit once you raise capital. I'm not sure. That's why I'm going to ask this question, but how do you um, think about top line growth and profitability? And like, obviously both are important, but like, how do you guys think about that as a, as a company just on what do you focus on? Or the answer could be you focus on both, but I've seen both sides, especially like being at RX earlier on when, you know, top line growth was a really big focus to then, you know, I would say profitability at some stage becomes a bigger you know, focus, but just curious on how you guys think about all of that, you know, from a PL. Yeah. And I think investors have 
um, started to care about a lot more than just top line growth in, in the last few years where that used to sort of be the end all be all was how much is top line growing. Yeah. And now it's okay, how sustainable is this business model? What do gross margins look like? How much are they spending on trade? Um, and how do we get to, to net revenue numbers that are that are equally compelling um, and, and EBITDA numbers, et cetera. So um, that's been a dual focus of ours from the beginning. Of course, if you're not growing top line and not growing as a business, then it's not that interesting to future investors and, and the business isn't necessarily going in the right direction. But we've also tried to be incredibly disciplined about keeping really, really solid gross margins, um, cutting costs wherever we can, and making sure that eventually um, we can fuel future growth with um, with gross margin instead of needing to, to raise and raise and raise. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. And I, I've been seeing a lot more of that from founders I've talked to and, and just honestly, a lot of founders on LinkedIn and stuff too, is just like more of a a pivot from that. I think to your point, it used to be so top line focused. And then I'm I'm assuming a lot of investors then, you know, look under the covers and they're like, well, hold on, what is all of this? Uh, you know, either high trade spend, poor margins, all that fun stuff. Very interesting. Yeah. If the fundamentals aren't there, then even if you're growing top line, you're just burning at such a inefficient rate that they seem to, yeah, to your point, really starting to look under the hood and figuring out, okay, what is my investment going to do? Is it going to be spent inefficiently just to grow that top line revenue number so it looks better next quarter? Or are they using it in ways to streamline processes to um, have more scale um, economies of scale when buying ingredients, et cetera, so that this thing can really be self-sustaining eventually? And making sure that founders have a path to that sustainable business model and profitability um, comes up all the time when we chat with investors now. Very interesting. Yeah. Cause it seems like the, it seems like more people are concerned as well on um, to your point, profitable, slower growth is what I keep hearing a lot about. Like they're okay with you waiting on distribution and kind of growing it the right way in a profitable manner than just jumping in, you know, one year to two year hockey stick momentum and top line sales uh, at, the, at the, you know, obviously by giving up margin. Um, so obviously, I mean, COVID's probably going to be your answer here, but I, I love asking this one too. So, you know, you've been, you're someone who's been there from the beginning at Stanford, you know, scaling this with just you and a co-founder. Um, now you've been in a few years and you're building a team. Um, what has been some of the biggest challenges of, um, you know, I guess going from just you creating the product and trying to sell it to then building a team and, you know, managing different people and kind of, I'm assuming at some point you got to like give up some of the day in day out responsibility of hands-on and you're managing broader teams. How has that gone for you personally? And just, I guess, advice for other people who are trying to start something who, you know, something going from their baby to a broader team. What's that been like? Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's your baby. You're used to being involved in every decision, every aspect. And you realize that over time that just 
that isn't going to be the most effective way for you to scale. So um, I think for a while we were reluctant to bring on people because we wanted that control. And, and at a certain point we realized, okay, we need to just be incredibly picky with who we bring into the fold and, and who we trust with, with our baby for right, lack of yeah. a better uh, metaphor. So we've been, we've been fortunate to be able to bring in um, a team with great experience from um all over the place, Impossible Foods, Annie's, Plum Organics, Halo Top, um, oh, wow. Q, um, as you know, um, RX Bar. Um, so really finding brands we admire and people within those organizations that we think were were top, top um, players and helping them understand our vision, the potential for this business to grow and how crucial of a piece of the puzzle they can be where yeah. um, I think I've tried to be very honest and clear of, Hey, I'm, I'm not a marketing expert. I've been in charge in, in some ways or, or um, have collaborated with, um, with others to create a marketing strategy that we can execute. But if you want to come and be our marketing director, like you would own that part of this business. And as we grow, you would be building a team within the marketing, um, within the marketing vertical and, and, and would have full reign. I'm not going to tell you how to, how to do marketing for this company when you know a lot more about marketing than I do. Yeah. And I think finding people who think of that as an incredible perk and such a great opportunity to own it and manage it and lead it and build it has been a great filter versus others who want more direction or want, um, want, others to be involved in those big decisions where that that doesn't necessarily scale either. So that's been a really important filter for us as we've been hiring. Yeah, it makes sense. And you can move faster, right? If you if you're someone who can be a little bit on, on their own and uh, help, you know, move in the direction they think is best, that's gonna help you guys scale faster too, hopefully. Yeah, you have to, and you just have to, there has to be an inherent trust. And, and we're actually a fully remote team. Um, that was my next question. Because there of COVID, go. but yeah. um, we, we've now hired people across the country. So we're um, across California, um, Austin, Texas, Minneapolis, Chicago, and New York. Oh, wow. Where we said, okay, let's embrace this and let's hire the best people for these roles without being constrained by a geography. And um, of course, it's, um, popular and sexy right now. And we'll see long-term whether that's right, that's the right approach for us and for other businesses. But I think it, it leads to us being really communicative on Slack, hopping on Zooms a lot. And also I think has raised the bar for us on who we hire knowing, hey, there isn't going to be someone looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're working. We need to yeah. just find people who are really, really driven and really excited about learning and building and owning. Um, and that's led to us, I think, hiring a best-in-class team so far. That's awesome. I I've been wanting to ask. Uh, I wanted to ask you that question because I feel like it's it's interesting. You like still hearing some brands that are, um, I don't know, for for lack of better words, just not maybe embracing this remote work environment. I was curious if that's something you guys have been thinking about and how you guys were handling it. Um, to me, you hit it on the head. I mean, I I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think that the brands that open their arms and will kind of allow some of this right now. I mean, whether that's long-term or not, I feel like you just have the opportunity of just getting the best talent all across the country to your point from brands, brands and experiences that um, can help grow your own brand. Um, 
versus only worrying about geography. It seems to me like, and who knows, but it seems to me in the future, we'll look back and think that was so funny that we all had to be in the same city sitting at desks all together. Like there's so much value in that to be able to like turn around and have conversations, but I don't know. I'd also argue there's so much more getting done today, at least in the environments I'm in um, just because you kind of are always connected, whether that's for good or bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think our, our plan, our hope is that the right balance is in a post COVID world. We each quarter pick a new place. We all go for a week. We get to spend time socially together. We figure out major goals for that quarter, sprints, decisions, et cetera, and then can all go back and do it remotely. But I've had this meaningful five days in the same spot working together. It's um, more cost effective than having an office. Um, right. It's more time effective versus people needing to, co- to commute to that office every day. And it's something that our team, we talk about um, our happy hours all the time, how much we're looking forward to all being together in one place for a week and working and hanging and getting to know each other better and really aligning on, okay, this is how we want to sprint for the next three months. And by having it be these sort of finite, concrete, week-long off-site sprints, the goals for the next three months can really be focused on and it can really be clear on, okay, this is what we need to get done. It's sort of a refreshing way, in our opinion, to look at it versus being in an office every day. And sometimes um, you can lose sight of exactly what the priority should be and why. A hundred percent. I love that idea. That is really cool to think like you guys could all be together for five days, heads down, like focused on on these sprints and, and goal planning. Um, to me, that would feel, you just would want to optimize the time. So you just think everyone would be more focused and it would be kind of a, be a nice balance between being able to work and live where you want and then being with your team and really being focused and then going and getting it done. I love that idea. That's really cool. Um, so I know we're, we're running out of time. I, I it, We've had a great conversation. So I appreciate you taking this time. The, the last chunk of questions uh, I, I really wanted to ask you um, are some of the ones I always ask. And then a, a few that are just general um, brand questions. Really, the one for the audience that I, I think adds a lot of value is um, what do you think for you guys and just in general is one of the most or the most important concept or, or really piece of going from zero to one with a concept to having a product that you can actually sell? It's sort of cliche, but I really think it's persistence and resilience of like, you need to grow really thick skin where um, every entrepreneur has heard no more than they've heard yes. Um, And finding ways to convince, whether it's a a, a factory, um, a supplier, a retailer, that you are going to Um, be a great partner when you don't have much to stand on other than an idea is challenging, but um, being able to be resilient in that sort of fight um, is, is crucial to, to getting anything done. And with that, I think being really um, empathetic and creative with understanding where they're coming from, why they're maybe reluctant to working with another unproven startup and how you can give them some more comfort around that. So like resilience and empathy when dealing with potential partners, I think is a a crucial part of the puzzle. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. Love that. Um, This one is, you know, for you, it's obviously, this is a newer venture. 
Um, I know you have lots of plans and lots of avenues you still want to go down, but when your time at Sweet Nothings is done, what would you like people to remember you by and, and how you built this brand? It's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think what, like I'm really passionate about this idea of the truly good for you product, where I think in the world today, we're seeing tons of better for you products, mm. um, many of whom I'd argue are marginally better for you and um, in some ways can, can um, be, whether it's intentional or, or not, um, a bit mysterious with how they're better for you, for, for sure. lack of a better word. Um, when you look at the developed world or even just the United States alone, like we um, eat many more calories than we necessarily need, yet we're still incredibly nutrient deficient um, in the foods that we're eating, whether you look at fruits or nuts and seeds or omega-3s or fiber, we're not getting the amount that, that we should be. And I think there's a responsibility for food companies to help provide that nutrition. And um, that's why we like to say we're a truly good for you CPG company, not a, not a better for you because it, it is a product and an ingredient mix that I can sit here and tell my um, seven-year-old niece or my friend or my mom, like, you should eat this every day. It is all stuff that we don't eat enough of that is truly good for you. Yeah. And that's something that I'm really proud of with the product line and with the brand. And um, I hope we can um, be one of many in a few years that is this truly good for you product and mindset versus the, the marginally better for you product. I love that. That's such a cool way to think about it. And it seems like that's a it's a big uh, why for you. I can tell that it's like, it's really what's driving you to get up and be pumped about this every day. Um, the last couple here, um, this one, I always say book, it could be book, podcast, whatever it is that you like to do, but what would be one source of knowledge that you would like to share with the audience? Again, like whether it's a favorite book, favorite podcast, anything. Yeah, I, um, on the podcast front, I love Allie Kane's In the Sauce. I don't know if you've had a chance to chat with her. No, but, uh, from Haven's Kitchen. Um, she's based out of New York. And um, I think similar value to what I get out of listening to your podcast. But she's an entrepreneur in the space and is incredibly honest with what she knows, what she doesn't know, and has people of all um, different backgrounds join her show from uh, a buyer at Good Eggs um, to a merchandising group, to uh, online marketer, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I've just found her honesty in those conversations and those practitioners' willingness to talk about what they look for. <clears throat> she had John Lawson, who runs runs the Northeast for Whole Foods on. Oh, awesome. um, yeah. She had someone from Dirty Hands, a merchandising group, come on. And I've just found so much value for, for food for as an entrepreneur in the space in those um, so that would be on the podcast front. Love it. Um, That's great. On, on the book front, I just read, I just finished The Everything Store, which is the, the story of Amazon and, and Bezos. And um, it's fascinating and incredible what they've been able to build. And um, I think there's parts of their processing culture that um, I, I really aspire to. There's other parts that I don't think perfectly fit the sweet nothings culture and, and personality, but um, just learning a ton about innovation, resilience, 
collaboration, et cetera, um, was something that I found much more applicable to the day-to-day of a startup than maybe I thought when I first started it. I love that one. I'm, I'm a, such a huge Amazon fan. I need, I need to read that. So I'm going to, I'm going to add that to my list right after this. Um, being an entrepreneur, a CEO, you're, you're running a company. Um, obviously there's a million things going on. What do you use to plan your goals to accomplish daily tasks and really just to get shit done, whether it's pen and paper an app, whatever it is, like, how do you organize your life to just get shit done? I am obsessed and live on Trello. Um, Trello. Okay. I have Trello open at all hours of the day, um, and have different, different buckets within Trello for sales, marketing, operations, production, random, personal, et cetera, that I'm constantly, um, looking through, checking off, adding to, et cetera. I have the app on my phone too, and it syncs with the with the desktop version. And that's really, really helped to organize my life. So that's a big one. And then part two, and it comes back to this sort of resilience mindset is um, boomerang on email, where pretty much every email I send, <laughs> I get a reminder back in three days if I haven't heard back. And whether yeah. that ends up being the appropriate time to follow up or I should wait another week, et cetera, just not there's so much going on that it's very easy to send a really thoughtful email not hear back and forget about it Um, and i found that sort of that follow-up email the response rate when you send one follow-up politely a week later is so much higher than the initial outreach yeah I've, i've stumbled on boomerang i'm not sure how long ago and i always forget i have it until i get the one back in the inbox and you're like oh thank god for boomerang this is so helpful <laughs> this is yeah, this podcast exactly. that happens all the time i'm sure i'm sure yeah that's a great one um and then last but most importantly how can people get involved uh following you and obviously the brand and uh, how can people try it yeah so um instagram at eat sweet nothings um is our handle um, I don't have a, a personal Instagram, so that's the, that's the best way to, to follow me as well, or of course, LinkedIn. Um, and then to try it, we're, as mentioned, we're in over a thousand stores now across the country and um, with some commitments, we'll be in 2000 by June. So yeah, I think wow. checking the find us on our on our website or, um, our, or, or ordering direct from our website or Fresh Direct or Good Eggs or um, a few other e-com sites that we'll be launching in April, um, yeah, all of those work and, and we're always very, very open and appreciative of constructive feedback. Um, what you didn't like, why, what you did like, why, when you ate it. Um, so um, there's a form on our website that we check and um, discuss um, frequently and, and are so appreciative of it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll add all that to the show notes uh, so everyone can find it. And uh, we know you're busy. So thank you so much for taking the time, Jake. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, I'm so glad we were able to, to get this on the calendar and really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day and uh, we'll get everyone trying sweet nothings. Sounds good. Awesome. Sounds good. See ya. Bye.